0: Well, we just sang about the kingdom, that time when Jesus comes and reveals himself with light and with rainbows, reveals himself with just a a glory of who he is. But that idea of the kingdom has been a theme for the last couple chapters of Luke. As we've been going through Luke, one of the things I've been trying to show is how these different chapters are connected. They're not like random parables or random stories. The Holy Spirit and Luke have put these together in such a way to bring these themes to bear. When you're reading the Bible, you want to sort of ask the Holy Spirit as you're reading to illuminate the text. And that's the way in which the Holy Spirit speaks to you about a passage and kind of puts it in bold print a little bit to say, hey, this is for you, and I want you to think about or meditate on this. So we do that today. I want to take you backwards into chapter 17 before we get to chapter 18 to remind you where we've been. Chapter 17, if you remember, Jesus says most people aren't going to be ready for the kingdom when it comes. When I return, when a son of man returns, one will be left and one will be gone. People aren't ready for the kingdom. Then he went on last week, we talked about how to be ready for the kingdom. If you want to be ready for the kingdom, you've got to wear out heaven like a widow, like we talked about last week, and beat your breast like a tax collector. The kingdom is drawn to humility. Now, there's two accounts today that are related. And here in the passage in chapter 18 we're going to look at, we're going to talk about how to receive the kingdom like a child and how to reject the kingdom like a ruler, this young ruler who misses out on the kingdom. But this kingdom thing is continuing to go through the text. Now, to do that, one of Jesus' most favorite or famous, rather, phrases occurs in the text we're going to look at today. And it's the question, Why is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom? And There's that kingdom phrase again. Why would it be easier for Jesus, in hyperbole, saying a camel, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to move into the kingdom? Well, before we look at that, That's kind of Jesus' point. These two accounts of the the young child and the ruler are going to end with, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. To do that, first of all, in our culture, there's kind of a deflection technique to say, oh yeah, yeah, the rich man, not talking about me. He's talking about Warren Buffett. He's talking about Zuckerberg. He's talking about Bill Gates. Because we all know someone wealthier than us. So before we deflect this as if it's talking to somebody else, let's take a moment and make sure as Jesus swings this two by four, he's talking to you and me. We are the rich ones. That he wants to hear this message about the kingdom. If you have a college degree, if you own a house, and if you had at least two meals yesterday, you're in the top 5% of world history of the wealthiest. Just with those three factors. Forbes magazine did an article and said, the average American today, the average American today, is 90 times more wealthy than the average person in history. 90 times. That's if you're an average American. So Jesus is referring to us when he's talking and warning us about missing the kingdom. And that's the issue. When you don't think you're rich, you don't think you need to wrestle with these things. That's for somebody else. Lastly, what if you ask somebody in Jesus' day? In Jesus' day, like, like, how do you define rich? And let's see how maybe in Jesus' day, their definition, would we live up to that definition? There's a rabbi the name of Rabbi Yoshi lived in the first couple centuries, and he said this, here's how you know you're in the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. He said, if you have a toilet near your table, if you have a toilet near your table, you are the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Indoor plumbing, running. I mean, of course, there was sewer systems in the Roman world. But if you were in a really, really, really rich city, you might have access to public bathrooms. Here's one from Ephesus. And you can see a public restroom in a really rich city was outdoors, multiple holer, and you would do business here at the city gates. You'd sit there on your hole and you would do business. Somebody sitting next to you in their hole and there's violins playing in the Roman world. And this is business place to do business. So you were doing your business while you were doing business. That's what would happen in those days. And this was like, wow, you're in a rich city. If you have access to like whew, a sewer system, a, a multi hole outhouse. But no one would imagine that from your dinner table. Within 10 steps, you could get to your toilet. No, those are 1% of 1% of 1%ers. In fact, they did some archaeological digs, and they found in Jerusalem a home of a very rich Pharisee or Sadducee, but it also had evidence of some priestly aspects to it. They think this might actually be the home of Caiaphas. This might be the very place that Jesus was tried at 3 in the morning before his crucifixion. And sure enough, in Caiaphas' house, they found a toilet within 10 steps of his table. Man, this guy's in the 1% of the 1%. So even in the definition of biblical times, if you've got a toilet near your table, you're rich. I think most of us can get to a toilet within 10 steps of our dining room table. So let's hear these words as words meant for us. And we're going to look at how a child... Treasures what matters most. And that's what we need to do. Treasure what matters most. And how the ruler measures everything except what matters most. So that you and I don't miss out on the kingdom and forget the role God plays in our life. Let's start with the child. The child treasures the one thing that matters. It says, They brought infants to him. The crowds are bringing infants to him. And notice the word infants. That he might touch them. But when the disciples saw all these people bringing their crying babies, they rebuked them. Hey, get them out of here. Hey, get those infants out of here. Jesus is busy. does don't have time for crying babies. And what's Jesus going to do? How is he going to respond to the disciples? And why are the disciples so down on babies? Well, will try to answer that question, too. But Jesus called to them and said, let. And this word in the Greek is very, very strong. If you grew up with the King James, or you saw maybe a a Bible video that used the King James, it says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Have you heard that phrase? Suffer the little children. Let the little children. It's used 14 times in the New Testament. It's the most powerful, strong word for allow. Even Even if it cost you something. Even if it made you suffer, this is a high priority, these infants. Very, very strong word. Why is Jesus used such a strong word? And why are the disciples such baby haters? Well, he says, allow, suffer the little children to come to me. Do not forbid them. For such is the kingdom of God. And here's our theme again. The infants know something and represent something that you need, disciples, that the crowd needs. For surely I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like this little child... Notice here, child, infant, child. it just comes over and over again. Children. By no means will enter it. So I want to talk about what it means to receive the kingdom as a child. But before that, let's answer the question, why are the disciples not getting this? And why does Jesus use such a strong word like suffer and allow and let... It's because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of life. The Egyptians were a kingdom of death, and Moses brought the law about we were going to be a a culture focused on life, not death. The Greeks and Romans were a culture focused on death, and Jesus is having to re educate his disciples who've been influenced by the Greek Roman view on life. The word infant here is a newborn, the newest among us, the youngest child. Why is it that the disciples don't value the kingdom of life that these children have inherent value? I'll tell you why. Because they grew up in Greek and Rome. The Greeks and Romans did not value life. And Jesus is saying there's something about an infant that knows that they're, they're totally dependent upon their parents. Do you remember when your kids are little, you know, even a couple years old, and, you know, they're just going to trust you're going to catch them. You know, you're going down the stairs. Quinn will do this all the time. He'll just suddenly jump on my back. I'm about stumbling down the stairs. But he just knows dad's going to be there for him. He just knows dad's going to trust him, right? There's something in that we need to know. But the Greeks and Romans did not value life. They practiced what was called infanticide. Infanticide is you could kill your children up until age two or three, Part of that was economic. A wife would have a child and bring the child to the father. And if the father didn't want the child, because of the caste system economically was so powerful, that if you divided your goods through inheritance with too many kids, you would drop down a notch in the caste system. So the husband would turn his back on his wife to say, "Mm Mm-mm, we're not dropping down from layer this to layer that, the plebeians to whatever. So the wife would then take the child and either put him in a bag... And walk him out to the river and drop him in. Or take the child out to the woods and leave it for exposure or for the wolves to eat. This was very common in the Greek-Roman world. So much so that Seneca, a Stoic philosopher, said this. Greeks and Romans, you come across a mad dog, you bash it in the head with a rock. You come across a handicapped or abnormal child, we drown him in the river. Just what you do in Greek and Rome. Aristotle, famous Aristotle, tried to pass a law making it illegal to rear a child that was abnormal or handicapped, because weak children don't belong in Greek and Rome. And Jesus is trying to re-educate his disciples on the value of human life, and to show how the kingdom values life unlike the Greeks and Romans. So to do that, I want to talk about what Jesus was bringing to bear here. He's bringing to bear a very powerful idea. And in our culture today, it's hard not to hear this political. It's hard to hear this as the pro-life, pro-choice debate. But this is deeply theological. So as best you can, try and hear this as theological. It's certainly got political implications. But hear this as basic Christian theology. Jesus is bringing to bear some things from the Old Testament. And they're powerful. In Jeremiah, it says that before I formed you, Jeremiah, before you were even in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart. That even before conception, God knew you. He loved you. He had a plan for you. He had a purpose for you. More than that, while you were being formed in the womb, Did you know that God, with everything he has going on, watched over you? He watched you being formed in the womb. He watched your children being formed in the womb. Psalm 139 says this, For you, God, formed my inward parts. You covered me. Notice he refers himself as a me in my mother's womb. I was a person in the womb, and you watched me. Your eyes saw my substance, yet unformed, in the womb. And that is why, whenever you get into this debate, it's a, you know, are you pro life or pro choice debate? Every time someone asks me, I always say this I am pro choice. Stay with me. Because I believe your rights come directly from God and the government shouldn't tell you what to do with your body. Oh, okay. And I believe a woman has a right to choose as long as it doesn't end a human life. So the question is when does life begin? Right? Because even the most libertarian view of government would say the government's job is to protect the innocent and keep you from infringing on somebody else's rights. So the question is, when does life begin? And the Bible's clear here that you are a someone, you are a somebody in the womb that God loved and watched over. And scientifically there's reasons to support that. You see, the minute... The the egg and the sperm come together. The chromosomes, half from one side and half from the other, come together. And if you test the DNA of that fetus at day one, it has a different genetic code than mom or dad. It's a different someone. The bloodstream. Your bloodstream comes from apart from your dad, apart from your mom. And so even the bloodstream itself, which starts pumping and moving through your body even by day 18, it's someone else's blood, not the mother's blood. It's someone else's DNA, not the mom's or the dad's. And the Holy Spirit doesn't inhabit warts, it doesn't inhabit blisters. And we come to the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit inhabits John the Baptist in the womb. Because God sees life, this culture of life, is that God saw you before you were even born. When you were conceived, you were a person God looked over, even in the womb. Now there's kind of a difference of opinion as to when you get your soul... I'm not sure why it's called a Catholic view or a Protestant view, because I'm not sure it really matters, but there's two views. One view is at the moment of conception, God's got kind of a, a storehouse of souls up in heaven, and it's got a Catholic view. God puts a soul in you at conception. That might be. The more typical Protestant view is that God made you and I as three in one. We're a body, soul, and spirit. And so when a creature, a male that's body, soul, and spirit, and a female that's body, soul, and spirit come together, you form a new creature that has a body, soul, and spirit. And God put in us the ability to actually reproduce body, soul, and spirit. So at the moment of conception, you not only have a new bloodstream, a new DNA, not only is God watching over you, but you actually have given a body, soul, and spirit because you were creating God's image to this child. I think some of the reason why Jesus is, is so emphasizing this is this was a culture that actually allowed you to kill your children through infanticide up until, you know, several years old for economic reasons, for inconvenient reasons, for the, hey, we don't want any weak people in our culture kind of reasons. And so this idea that Jesus brings to bear here, the kingdom of life, begins to spread. And this is really what turns the Roman Empire upside down, valuing people and adoptions and caring for the poor and the handicapped. This was very much core to what it meant to be part of the kingdom. It's pretty core to us. In fact, my son Quinn, many of you may know that his mom walked into an abortion clinic and was going to abort him. And So we met her, Jackie, and said we would adopt Quinn if, if she would take him to term, which she did. And so Quinn's name is Quinn Jackson Hovind, and Jackson stands for Jackie's son, because we wanted to honor her for placing him with us. And it was our way of saying thank you, and it was our way of honoring that she had gone through the process of delivering. Now, certainly the last nine and a half years with Quinn has been challenging. Suffer the little children to come unto you. Incredible high highs, but also challenges. And that's that cost of the value of life. That we as people of God should be pushing the value of life. Even yesterday, we had a funeral here. And it was wall to wall, standing room only in this room. Because a young man in our community at age 17, committed suicide. And it was a very difficult funeral. I got a chance to share the gospel. The family gave me permission to talk about the fact that he'd committed suicide. I got to talk about why suicide's morally wrong, why it is forgivable, why it is complicated. And we got to share with everyone here that we want to be a place you can come when you're feeling hopeless, when you're feeling difficult, when you're feeling those evil thoughts to say you don't matter. It's a kingdom of life. We want to be the, the to help people find the life and life more abundant and, and push back against the thief who comes to kill and destroy. We should be life-centered people. But he's also said there's something about the infant that speaks to how we should respond to God, right? Something about receiving the kingdom. And this idea actually comes out of the book of Daniel. It's really fascinating. In Daniel, the same phrase, to receive the kingdom like a child that Jesus uses, comes out of Daniel 7.18. The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom. And when you receive the kingdom, you possess the kingdom. And then it's like Daniel really wants you to know what it means to possess the kingdom. When you possess the kingdom, you get it forever. Oh, even forever. Oh, and ever. That's a lot of evers, right? And I think this is where the doctrine of eternal security comes from. When you receive the kingdom, God forgives you past, present, and future. When you receive it, you got it. You possess it. It's yours eternally. That's the kind of sealing the Holy Spirit does of you. That's the kind of gift it is to you. But you've got to learn how to receive the kingdom. And the reason an infant, the most vulnerable among us... Think about an infant. An infant is vulnerable. It's dependent. For the first few months, the infant doesn't really bring anything or contribute anything to the family, right? Except for a bunch of sleepless nights and a bunch of poopy diapers. Right, that's what it contributes. All it really does is receive love and receive nurturing that dependence and vulnerability of the infant jesus says should be you and i that's us the kingdom works best when you're dependent when you don't realize oh look how much i'm contributing to you god you owe me no no god i just need you i mean like when you bring home to your kids or grandkids a super soaker right hey i got a super soaker i bought it for you You want this it's a free gift How many of your kids or grandkids ever said, whoa, I'd like to do chores for a week and make sure I can earn that before I use the super soaker? How many have ever said, I'm not sure if I'm worthy of the super soaker. Let me pray about that. No, they just receive. Yet how many of us don't receive God's encouragement? Well, I can't forgive myself. Well, I can't really take a compliment. I got to earn it. I got to prove I'm worthy of it. I had a friend who is really against counseling. He's like, oh, I don't need counseling. I don't need help. You know, only weak people need counseling. And I've been trying to build a friendship with him for many, many years. And another similar story. A man and his wife met with me recently, and I was helping them with some marriage counseling issues. And they got done. They said, this was so helpful. I said, well, these are habits. You've got to sort of break some habits. This isn't a one-time meeting. It's sort of ongoing conversations to sort of get better at this. So after encouragement from both of them, I got a call back uh, about a month later. It said, hey, things aren't going well, and uh, we could use some help. Then I got an email back. My husband said, I shouldn't have told you that. Uh, things are fine. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so here's an example. Like The kingdom says we are vulnerable infants who need help. The opposite is I don't need help. Don't tell people we got problems. Don't tell people we need help. Don't go to a counselor. Don't get a marriage counselor. No, 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 no. You are not going to absorb the kingdom with that kind of self dependency. It's not true. It's not real. It's not boasting of your weaknesses because God's grace has made sufficient weakness. So I go to this friend's house. And for the first time, really, in 10 years of knowing him, I have a real conversation. He's struggling with depression. He really is open to feedback. He admits he's been drinking too much and medicating some things too much and struggling with some pornography. And suddenly we're in the middle of the weakness. I'm feeling somebody who is a self-made person really talking about, I need, I need help. I don't know. I can't figure this out. And suddenly the kingdom began to bear there, began to work there, because he began to think about his relationship with God as an infant, not as, God, just you know, give me some chance, give me some marching orders, I'll get some work done for you. So I think that's Jesus' point here, is that the, the child knows how to prioritize what really matters. He treasures what really matters. Dependence on the king. Then he moves over to a ruler. And he tells us about this ruler. And it's a young ruler. And this ruler measures everything except what matters. Look what happens. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So, so Jesus said to him, Huh, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. So this ruler is a measurer, and he has been measuring everything Jesus has done. Good sermon. Nice miracle. God, you're pretty good. And Jesus says, hey, you're measuring my works, but not my claims. If you think I'm good, there's only one person who's good, and that's God. God. I've been claiming to be God. Can you measure what I'm really saying? What I'm really saying is I'm God in the flesh. And when we get into ruler mode, we start saying, hey God, good sermon, good advice. I might apply that. God, nice proverb, huh, something to think about. And then we don't apply it. We come to the Bible and we sort of we act as the judge of the Bible. We say, oh, I don't think that's a little too inconvenient. I don't think I'm going to learn how to apologize. I'm not really an apologizer. Do all things without grumbling and complaining? Mm, no, I don't think that's something I'm going to do. That's kind of the doesn't apply to me kind of thing, because we don't take the Bible as this is God's word to us. And I trust God's word to me. And even though I may not like it, it may not seem to make sense. It may seem inconvenient. It's coming from God. So I'm going to obey it out of trust in the king that even though I may not be instinctual, maybe not how I grow up. I want to measure this as coming from God and say, I'm going to trust the king to do what he's asking me to do. What percentage of the Bible do you believe is from God? The right Christian answer is 100%. But the real Christian answer is, what percentage of the Bible do you act like is true? I maybe on a good day think 40% of the Bible is true if you look at how I live my life. I sort of deflect the other 60%. I only measure what matters. I only measure the part I want to do. If we really believe the king gave us a book from the king, then we need to say, I need to act like and obey like this came from the king, so I can be part of the kingdom. And Jesus responds to this. This is so great. Just response continues. Okay, you want to know how to inherit eternal life, how to be part of the king? I'll tell you, first you recognize you're talking to the king. Second thing, well, let's talk about it. You know the commandments. You don't commit adultery, you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't bear false witness, you honor your father and mother. And the ruler, who's really good at measuring what he does right, and refuses to measure what he does wrong, says, all these things, wow, I have kept from my youth. Amazing. Let's, Let's say he's 30. He has never committed adultery. Remember, Jesus raised the bar to saying, even if you lusted for someone in your heart. He's never lusted after anyone since he was a youth. Wow, isn't that amazing? He's never murdered somebody. All right, well, maybe he's believable. He's never stolen anything. And this guy from his youth never has told a lie. He's never... Bear false witness. He's never done anything wrong. He's never fudged the truth. He's never deceived anyone at any time. Wow. What's the chances that that's true? Low. Why does he think it's true? I think the same reason you and I think it's true. We measure where we obey. Oh, I did really good on that one. And then somebody says, well... Tell me how you disobeyed. This happens in every marriage. This happens in every every department, every culture you see. You see this, especially with married people. Hey, tell me what you did right in that fight. Oh, let me tell you what I did right. Oh, my goodness. I did this right, and I did this right, and I did this right. Tell me what you did wrong in that conversation. Well, maybe... They shouldn't be so sensitive, right? So we measure what we do right, and we don't measure what we do wrong. And then I say, well, well, tell me what your spouse did wrong. (laughs) Oh, here's what my spouse did wrong. Well, what did your spouse get right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's what we do. And this is exactly what the ruler does. He measures all the things he does right, and he deflects all the things he does wrong. So Jesus says, time to measure what you do wrong. We're going to talk about the 10th commandment. And the 10th commandment's going to reveal you've been breaking the first commandment. Here's what he says. So Jesus heard these things, and it's probably Jesus like, right. Jesus heard these things, and he said to him, you know what? You still lack one thing, just one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. He puts his finger on the 10th commandment. You struggle with covetousness. Now this passage brings up, like, how do you interpret a verse like this? Like, should I not own a house if I want to be a real Christian? Should I not have investments if I want to be a real Christian? And you hear some people say that. You know, if you have any money ever... You obviously aren't really following Jesus. Well, Jesus does not tell everyone to sell everything in the Bible. He doesn't say this to Nicodemus, who's very wealthy. He doesn't say this to Joseph Marathia, who's very wealthy. He doesn't say this to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, who are very wealthy and support his ministry. He doesn't say this to Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, who is the CFO of King Herod, one of the richest men in history. So, the question we need to ask is why does he say it to this guy and not to everybody? Because Jesus will always tap you on the shoulder and put his finger on anything you haven't yet surrendered. And though God doesn't tell everyone to sell everything, he does tell everyone to surrender everything. And when you have something in your life you have not surrendered, He will say, let's talk about that. Because your coveting problem is actually, you're not just breaking the tenth commandment, you're breaking the first. You have some other God besides my Father. And that's what you're coveting. And your God might be your freedom. And you're saying, God, you can have whatever you want, just don't touch my freedom, my independence. God might say, have you surrendered everything? Then this job that you've loved and you've identified yourself with that title and with that job, you've just lost that job, or you're about to lose that job, or you're going to retire. And whatever caused it, God's going to say, Was that your job or mine? Had you surrendered that you were my manager, my temporary steward of that job, or did that job define you? Because if that job defines you, you're going to covet that position and that title because you have a God besides my God and your number one God is your career. How about your children? We all love our children, but have you surrendered your children? If you lose a child at a young age, will you thank God, even as you're grieving, that he allowed you to have time with that child for however many years he gave you, but it was surrendered that it was his child? If you have children going through rebellion, and you've done everything you can to get them to obey, and God says, will you surrender them to me? It might take me a decade of giving them some hard knocks lessons, but will you surrender your child that you love, that I love too, that I'm going to sort of take over the parenting, even if it means some pain? No, God, I don't want my kids to have pain. Yeah, well, comfort, tap, 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 can't be your God. Being a good mom or dad can't be your God. Career can't be your God. And Jesus will tap you on the shoulder. Anything that has become your true God. Because, Here's why the rich man has trouble entering the kingdom. Why is it easier, Jesus is about to say, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom? It's easy. Because the rich man treasures and measures something more important than the king. You're serving some other kingdom. And as long as that kingdom rules your heart, you're not going to be able to get into this kingdom... Because this kingdom is your real God. Which is why Jesus comes back to this and says, we got to start measuring what matters. Measure what matters. What is it in your life that you've not yet surrendered? What are you depending on besides God? And it's probably not a bad thing. It's probably a good thing you've turned into an ultimate thing. And Jesus is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, it's time to surrender. Surrender everything to the kingdom. That's why he says it this way. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. Then you're ambitious. I love ambition. You want treasure? Way to go. I want you to have treasure too. He affirms that. He just says, you're aiming too low. You will have treasure in heaven if you do what I'm talking about. But when he heard this, the ruler, he was very, not a little bit, very sorrowful for he was very rich. And Jesus saw that he had become very sorrowful. Because he said, the things I have on earth, these are valuable. Treasures in heaven. That sounds great. Treasures in heaven. He was measuring his kingdom on earth as much more valuable than the kingdom Jesus was offering. And Jesus says, it is hard to those who have riches, who treasure and measure a kingdom more than my kingdom, to enter into my kingdom. He goes on. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man, someone who measures and treasures something besides my kingdom, to enter into the kingdom of God. And those who heard it, the disciples and the crowd, those who heard it said, Whoa, who then can be saved? So clearly the disciples realized this two-by-four was aimed at them. They didn't say, Whew, thank goodness, can't wait to get the CD to pilot I'm going to hand this sermon to King Herod. This doesn't apply to me. Even as poor, by historical standards compared to us, they recognize this convicting message was aimed at them. In the same way it's aimed at us, what have you not surrendered? And what kingdom are you measuring more valuable than his? And just when they're sort of taking the weight of this, Jesus says, hey, guys, the things that are impossible, that seem impossible with men, are possible with God. God can change any of our hearts when you begin to value the king and the kingdom. Think of it this way. Imagine I'm going to get into my DeLorean, turn on my flux capacitor. I'm going to get going about 88 miles an hour, fire across the stage, and Chad is going to go back to 1980. In 1980, there's a garage sale going on in Groveland, Illinois, where seven-year-old Chad, who loves Star Wars, he has bought every Star Wars figure. I mean, he has Han Solo, he has Luke Skywalker, he's got the X-Wing, he's got the Y-Wing. He even had a hernia operation when he was five, and his parents said, you can have any and the biggest thing he could imagine was the Death Star. And he got the Death Star with this big trash compactor with foam and this little creature inside of it. And he has all of that for sale at the garage sale in 1980. And he is selling Luke Skywalker and the Emperor that he sent UPC symbols in. Because it's the only way he could get the Emperor. In fact, he even lied. And put his name in twice in the letter. He sent a Chad Hovind and a Chad Hogan with those UBC symbols. So he'd get two emperors. <laughs> and all of this valuable Star Wars stuff, he's selling each one of those figurines for a quarter. And Boba Fett ship for like two bucks. And the Death Star for like 25 bucks. And I get out of the flux capacitor. Chad, 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 Chad! I just, I need 21 gigawatts. No, I don't say that. I say, Chad, give me all your Star Wars figures. Give me all your Star Wars stuff. I want to put it in the, in the, in the DeLorean. I'm going to take it to 2019, and oh my goodness, I'll see you then. This stuff's worth like 200, dollars dollars $400,000. And Chad's sitting there in 1980. He's like, hey, what are you going to pay me for it? No, just trust me. Trust me that if you give that to me, By the time we meet up in 2019, you'll be so glad you did because what you're about to sell for a quarter is so much more valuable in the future. And all Chad can think of in that moment is, but if I sell all this, I'm going to have like 140 bucks. And He-Man just came out and I'm going to start buying He-Man figures. I need to get He-Man. I got to get Battle Cat. I got to get Ram Man. I got the whole list of Castle Grayskull. And so I say, no, no, no. That's a terrible deal you're offering me. When Jesus comes and asks you to surrender, he's just coming to DeLorean from the future. Whatever you sell, whatever you surrender, whatever you give up, is so you can have more treasure, better treasure, eternal treasure in the future. In fact, uh, 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 Kenner actually made the toys for Star Wars here in Cincinnati, if you don't know that. So a friend of mine was one of the toy developers. He goes to our church uh, for the Star Wars figures. And so they had a a tour of all the Star Wars figurines that came through about six months ago. And I got a tour. And he's walking me through, and I'm like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. He said, Chad, I was one of the guys who invented many of these toys. I invented that one. I put the mechanism on that one. He said, Chad, I got to tell you, he showed me this one toy. I said, I never saw that one. He goes, that one didn't make it out publicly. He said, we just didn't like it was good enough. So I took it with many other things and I swept it off my desk into the dumpster. And they went and they poured that into the dumpster and it went to some landfill. And that prototype that was sitting on my desk that I invented, there's only three in the whole world now. Worth like 50 to 100 grand, something I threw in the garbage. He said, if I could go back and take everything we threw in the garbage off our tables, I would be a millionaire today. And the things that we so struggle over, God is tapping us on the shoulder and saying, guys, I want you to treasure what matters most, eternal treasures, not the temporary ones. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this challenging message from Jesus. Teach us how to act like infants and how to see the way we miss the kingdom when we begin to measure the wrong things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you leave today, I want to let you know Easter is coming up, and we're going to have complimentary tickets for our seven Easter services starting next week. So if you want to think about which service you want to come to, we're going to have a three, a four, and a 5 p.m. on Saturday. We're going to have our usual three on Sunday, and we're going to add a fourth at 1220. So tickets begin next week. Out by the fireplace, invite your friends, and we're going to have a great Easter celebration. Thanks for being here today.